Welcome to the Blarney Pilgrims Podcast. Today, one of our long list of people are kind of local legends, um, although he's a lot more than that. So there's some people, when we've been doing this project, there's some people whose names have come up again and again and again. And you'll know that that's true because if you go back to listen to several of the intros to other episodes, you'll have heard me saying exactly the same thing. Um, we basically do the same intro, but just insert a different name. Because actually, uh, this is one of the first people who uh, was flagged up to us as somebody we had to speak to, and his name is Jody Morin. Sometimes you need to set the setting for our interviews, and this was a particularly surreal one. <laughs> Again, we're sitting in a um, what would probably be like the coach's room in a basketball stadium. So you've got a huge basketball stadium, beautiful, what I would call fairly state of the art. Look, really looks nice on the inside. My boys would have loved it. And at the end of the basketball court, there's a full glass wall. And behind that glass wall, we're probably like the coach's room. It's probably That's coach's it. room, right? So we had one interview in there during the day. And you don't notice when the light is on, it's bright outside. But when we sat down with our guest today, who we'll, I'll describe in a moment, when we sat down, the, we were losing light. And for some reason, it was a buzz. So to, again, we're sitting in a small room in a surreal environment with one of the best, like he's a, he's a world-class player, and you just scratch your head and you go, what? And actually, when you hear him play, he's he's very unfussy. We, we saw him um, the afternoon before we did the interview. We saw him leading a, a session for youngsters in the pub. Um, there was youngsters, there was old people, everybody playing together. And he, he he's just one of those people that he sits down and he plays, and that's it. It's like, there's, there's, there's no fuss, there's no fanfare. It's just like, uh, it's like sure. you and me eating a ham sandwich. You know yeah. what I mean? It's just that. <laughs> well, I'm not that I play, but you can see him. He just give a glance, a nod, and like tune, and just in. Yeah. It doesn't matter what instrument yeah. either. <laughs> a blade of grass, or <laughs> we could have been picked up. And so that's a great chat coming your way here, decked from head to foot in Galway GAA colours, no less. Is Jody Moran.
Jody Morin, welcome to the Blarney Pilgrims podcast. What was that tune? The tune I just played was called Sleeve Galgua. And it was a tune that I got taught when I was uh, probably five or six at the local music class. And the reason that I played that one at first is because my first instrument was the whistle. And with that tune, I was very fortunate to win the All-Ireland in uh, 1987. And the, the under-12s, yeah. So that's got a special place for me, the, that tune. Is that 12? I would have been 11 probably, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wow, far out. Where was it? Yeah. Where it was, was in Listall. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And for uh, well, for, for for anybody to win it, but for, for somebody from not not from Ireland was a rarity. So it's pretty special. And when when they called my name out at the end, like no, nobody believed it because normally the the I can't remember which way it was, but they called my name out, and everybody thought I'd got a third, but I'd actually got the the first place. So it was great. It's a great experience. What's that like for such a, such a young age? Yeah, I, it's only looking back. Like when when you when you're that young, you, you don't appreciate the significance of it. But yeah. when so you look back, it's pretty. Then you obviously started much younger. Then what age uh, were you? Well, probably probably five or six. So the, the local Irish club where we were living. So we we lived in a very um, densely populated Irish community. So it was in between Liverpool and Manchester, a town called Wigan. Okay. Um, and the local Irish club was called the Brian Brew in a little village called Ashton in Makerfield. So I, I just got dragged along there with my... Well, my, my older brothers were already going there and I just got dragged along for Saturday yeah. afternoon, yeah. So you say big community, what kind of size are you talking? Oh, well, Wigan's probably 250,000, but, yeah. you know, we, we just congregated around a lot of Irish people. And I, I, it's a flippant thing to say, but, you know, until I was... Yeah, nine, ten, eleven. It felt like I was actually in Ireland rather than in England. Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, completely makes sense. <clears throat> Certainly, I mean, that's when you took a whistle straight, straight off from. There. Yeah, whistle was. Oh, that was my first instrument, probably five or six. Yeah, but um, the, the teacher who taught us, Billy Green, Ollie, had a big influence on my music. He's he played piano with the Liverpool Curly Band, but his. Um, main instrument was the piano accordion um, yeah. hence why so many people around that area play piano accordion now so, so your parents where were your parents originally from are they are they, are they Irish so uh, mum's Irish she was born in a, a townland in Athenry called Ty Saxon in Galway and my dad he was born in England but his family were from just outside Tubbacurry a townland called uh, Tullahushin okay um so the the reason I was making the comments about Moran and Moran, so when when my grandfather came over from Sligo, he got to the docks in Liverpool and he couldn't read or write. So when, when he said said the name, the closest that the English had was Moran, but our name originally was Murrin, which is M-U-R-R-I-N, which is a very popular name in Mayo and Sligo, so it got changed. Yeah, right. So it's gone from Murrin to Moran to Moran. I didn't know that Murrin was a... Um I didn't know that was an Irish name. I, I, yeah. I know someone called Merrin, and I, I don't think I'd seen it before. Yeah. What was the Wigan that you were growing up in like? As oh, a Wigan. Uh, so so that's like kind of is that like mining country right there? Was Wigan it? was um, traditionally it was a lot of coal mines and cotton mills, uh-huh. um, and people who are from that, that part of the north of England. And if, if you went five kilometres in any 
in any direction there's a very different not just an accent but different dialect and that that was based around people who were you know they were very insular in that particular community because of the coal mine or the the cotton mill so in in my sort of suburb called Pemberton in Wigan we'd, we'd have a very distinct dialect um, but it was a nice place growing up it's very predominantly white British there's very few uh, non-white people living there uh, but I, I have got very fond memories of living in Wigan um, but as I was growing older it was difficult being um, you know a Republican sympathiser when you're living in in the heartland of England that's yeah, it was difficult. Yeah. The only thing, the only thing I know about Wigan is uh, the Wigan Casino. Is that? That's the, oh yeah, that's not there anymore. But it was a, a huge. That was it. That a was draw the card for, Yeah, huge draw. But what? Card what the, that was. That was sixties. That wasn't it. That's yeah, it's before 60s, my time. 70s, yeah, 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 yeah. And then, so I mean, that would have been. Um, I, I suppose you were coming up around the time when Thatcher was yeah yeah Thatcher had a big influence on my community and uh, when when she passed away a couple of years ago she got this state funeral but you know pockets of northern England they they made these effigies and they, they were burning around a bonfire which you know the and in, and in, and in Scotland in Scotland probably as well <laughs> yeah, yeah so yeah. yeah she had a, a huge impact on were you aware of that when you were growing up not really it, no yeah. no I was um, I was born in seventy six and she sort of came in shortly after that. Yeah, seventy nine. Yeah. Yeah, but she um yeah, but I don't know if anybody remembers the programme called Spitting Image. Aye. It was sort of a, a a mockumentary with plasticine puppets and she was she was a monster on <laughs> on Spitting Image and uh, yeah. She was she wasn't well liked in our community. Yeah. Not at all, yeah. Yeah. What was your folks' place in that community? Like, what, what did your dad do? Our dad was a joiner, right. yeah. Um, and he was... Well, that, that um, banner across the north of England's very strong rugby league country. So I grew up playing rugby league because that's what my dad did and what every boy did in that region. Like right. anybody in Ireland played hurling or football. Or in Victoria, play AFL. So everybody played rugby league. So dad was a joiner, mum was a midwife. She was one of these people who cycled around the village with a headlight on and doing home births up tenements and terraced houses. So, uh, so mum's still alive, she's just turned, uh, she's in her 80s. Dad died when I was 12 actually, so that had a big impact on my uh, formative years. How many is in your family then? So there's, there was four boys, um, Sean's the eldest, he's actually just passed away very suddenly with a heart attack earlier in the year. Um, so they had Sean in 64 and then Tom the second LSE he was born on the 1st of January and he's one of what's called Irish twins so he was born on the 1st of January 67 and then my next eldest brother Peter was born the same year on the 6th of December so yeah so they had three boys very close together and then I was 10 years down the line as an afterthought had you heard that expression before? I have heard that, <laughs> with reference to my own two children. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, actually, yeah. yeah, yeah. American, a couple of American folks um, yeah. said, oh, Irish twins. I was like... There must have been a few Irish twins in, your, uh, in, in our, our family. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, yeah, I guess there were. <laughs> I'm many? from a family of 12 children, oh, right, so right, I'm, yeah. I'm the 10th of 12. Wow, so. Yeah. so the music side of things, who else is it that you're learning from? Mm. <clears throat> Let me come back a little bit. So the, the, yep. the club that we, we learned from was the most amazing place. So all, all these Irish workers would come to this club, and everybody who was in there, if they weren't born in Ireland, they were... Um, they were so into the Irish music, it was sort of palpable. So my dad wasn't born in Ireland, but he was very supportive of nurturing these Irish roots. He he would go back to Ireland every summer in his younger days, and he, he loved Ireland, but he was born in England. Mm-hmm. Um, and my mum emigrated from Athenry when she was 18 to do midwifery in Bolton, just outside of Wigan. Um, and it's almost that when mum left Ireland, the nostalgia and reminiscence of Ireland... Um, grew. It's like a lot of exiled people, whichever country that they're in. We were just talking to Darren Ali about people in Ireland. They're almost spoilt for choice. They've got sessions that they could go to here, there and everywhere. But when you're exiled somewhere else, you, you grab hold of whatever you can. So both mum and dad were very supportive of of that happening. So mum's a beautiful ballad singer. Um, so up until that time when I was 12, both of those really nurtured us going into this Irish community. It was so good for us. It was amazing. Can you paint a picture for me of that? Like, if you remember the... Cause like, so when I started learning the whistle, I remember it was in the local museum. I can remember really clearly kind of going in there. Can you paint a picture for me of that, going into that club? When, I, when I tell you this story, you'll never believe this. So <laughs> this guy called Billy Greenall, I was telling you, he played with the Liverpool Caliban. He was a magnificent piano player. And it was best just outside Liverpool called St Helens. So this club was a tiny little place. Like a lot of the Croatian or Serbian clubs, they just got whatever building they could. So it was a tiny place, and at the time it was full of smoke. You know, you're wafting through smoke to get to the bar. So upstairs in this club, um, they sort of held functions every now and again. But Saturday afternoon from 12 till 3 was when the Irish music happened. So Billy Greenall would stand... Uh, trying to think of measurements now. I say it was seven metres by four metres, so it wasn't a very big place. So every Saturday afternoon there would be kids in there, up to 60 kids, I would say, learning different instruments, different age groups and different standards. And Billy would stand at the front of the room with a ruler and somehow, I don't know how we did it, but somehow we learned how to play Irish music. Whereas nowadays, you know... Generally, it's one-on-one, maybe teacher to two kids, but we, we learnt crammed into this big, not not a big hall, but a small space, and we just, we learnt music. And was the was the Irish cultural scene there, or the, the scene of the Irish community there, would that, would that be different in the north of England than it would have been in somewhere like London, say? I don't think so, hmm. yeah. I suppose the difference, uh, so in... I'll talk about cultists for a minute. Aye. So cultists for me was it was just an amazing organisation to solidify what we learnt and you know you went to competitions and we didn't have what they had in Ireland where you could go to sessions and go to house dances. <clears throat> it was really based around the flowers. Um, and the only time we would really associate with anybody outside of our own Irish community was in the cultists flowers. So we'd meet people from Leeds or. Manchester or Birmingham or London. But they'd, they'd all be doing their own little thing, similar to what we would be doing. But we, we were a fairly small branch, Ashton and Makerfield. It wasn't even Wigan, it was just a little village. Whereas the other cultist branches were in big 
cities. And in Manchester, there was three branches at one time. So, um, yeah, growing up, the Irish, um, the Irishness was very, very strong. Yeah. Were you aware quite early on that you had a knack for playing the whistle? Um, I don't think at that time, but now that I look back, and I've taught a lot of people, and particularly a lot of kids, looking back I was very, I just had a natural gift for music, but especially learning music by ear. And even though, you know, if I hear a tune, I can pretty much play it back straight away. And that that's just a natural gift, I don't think that can be taught. Um, but I, I also was good at singing as well. Um, and then on the other side, I had a real ability for sports. So I, I played rugby league to quite a high level. Um, and when it, when it came to flower time, it was difficult to choose whether you you go to the flower and play music or whether you you go and play whatever just, competition it is. That's with an incredible rugby. amount of dedication to not only be nine, or be young, right? So even just when you won the uh, eleven, when you won the um, All Ireland, but the amount of time and dedication to get to that level of mm. of craft while splitting that with, with you're playing sport at that age too mm. oh yeah for sure we, we would train five nights a week at school and then what about on the instrument how, how much were you practicing well it's funny because I, I don't actually remember practicing that much but I must have because you don't get to a, that sort of level without practicing yeah. but it I, I definitely remember practicing rugby league a lot more than I ever practiced music yeah did you continue to compete through your through your life in rugby? No, or? in in music. Well, actually, in both. Yep. Yeah. So I, I played to quite a high level. So when I got to sort of fifteen or sixteen, I was scouted to sign professional for a Warrington. Mm-hmm. Um, but about ten years previously, my brother Peter had he'd gone down that avenue, and for a number of reasons, it just didn't work out for him. So because I was also quite academic, uh, and my dad had passed away at this. Points. My mum sort of uh, guided me down the academic route rather than going down the professional rugby route. Um, so outside of the cult is the thing that really kept me going through those teenage years because a lot of kids, as you know, did drop off from whatever it is that they're doing, particularly music. A lot of kids feel it's like an obligation or a chore. And Probably at around 13 there was... Um, it wasn't really an organisation, but uh, it was a movement called Coolra, which I believe means sort of background. And that was set up by a guy called John Ferguson, who was living in Leeds. He was a piano card player as well, just by coincidence. Uh, but he his idea was to get these groups of kids who were doing flowers in separate parts of the country and get them all together for separate weekends. So one in a regional area. One is a national area, and then once a year we would go to Dublin. So all these people from Glasgow, uh, Ashton, Leeds, Birmingham, Manchester, London, we'd all congregate. And it was really cooler that kept me focused and dedicated to the music, because it would have been so easy just to, to give it up. Did it, become, did it ever become a bit of a chore <coughs> in those young years? No, it just got stronger and stronger for me, yeah. yeah. So I'd, I'd, you know, there'd be LPs in the house that my three older brothers would have no interest in. Um, but I don't know why. For me, it was it was like gold. I'd put the, the LP on or the cassette and I'd, I'd just play it on repeat and repeat and repeat. So what, what were you listening to? 
Oh, all sorts of stuff. I mean, the one LP that springs to mind, I'm not sure why, because if somebody listened to it now, it, it's, um, it was the Russell family. You heard of my car, Russell? Yep. So the Russell family did a couple of um, albums there from um, Doolin and Claire. And if, if you listen to the LP now, to the untrained ear, it just sounds like, it doesn't sound good at all, like it's real squawky and... Squeak, squeaky, sort of. Squeaky and... It's not very um, pleasant to the ear, but to my ear, it was really beautiful. I, I can't explain why. Um, and then the cassette that I really remember listening to, and I, I wore it to a thread, was Kathleen Collins. She was a fiddle player from New York. Uh, it was recorded sort of in the 70s, but I don't know where I got it from, but I got this cassette and I just played it and played it and played it and played it. So that, those recordings and that cool really kept me going. And, and the fact that there was a couple of other kids my age who were still playing music, mm-hmm. that really kept me interested. And did you ever compete in the All-Ireland again after the under-12s? Yeah, so I, I competed a lot. So I never won the All-Ireland again until um, a few years ago. So I would have competed on accordion and singing. and um, I got placed in the Lilton actually a few years ago. Um, and I competed a lot with Kayleigh Bands, particularly Leeds Kayleigh Band, when I was there at university. Um, and then a few years ago, I was fortunate enough to win the All Ireland again, but for um, composing new tunes. Yeah, right. So yeah, so I, I competed a lot during my during my youth. It's just it was great. It was great fun. Well, I can't let you <laughs> mention little things, singing, all the other ones you mentioned. Can we have a, another tune or or a song? Yeah, or do you want a lilt something? A lilt, yeah, I don't mind. Fantastic. So this is the. the um, I'll do one into the other. The first one's a little beggarman, um, and then we'll go into a real call. The um, pigeon on the gate. Dum the <laughs> 
that's incredible I've never heard <laughs> such complexity in in dialing not that I've heard a lot I should say but that was just incredible um, when you're when you're doing that right and and you're doing that in competition how much latitude do you have for because I, I I could be wrong here but I I thought I heard things in there that I I've not I, I've likewise not heard in in lilting before like like little percussive phrases and things in there that, like how much invention is is in there and how much is yeah there's um, there's room room for improvise there for sure there's this there's certainly two non ways to lilt sounds a funny thing to say but some some lilting would uh, sound a lot straighter like you were playing on the pipes and some would be a lot more intricate and it's trying to form um, like a plucked pattern like a banjo That's, are you thinking in banjo uh, sometimes yeah, yeah yeah it varies but but the the, the um, shapes are the sounds that come from your mouth they call those vocables V-O-C-A-B-L-E-S um, and it, you know, depending on the day and where you are and how you're feeling, you'll put different things in. You might throw the odd swear word in here and there as well. But, and and when you're in competition, some some judges will, you know, they'll warm to that type of expression, and some the more puritan ones will frown upon it. I suppose. So it, yeah, it depends. And this this is a question coming from not knowing anything about it. But what what is the process of learning a tune to lilt? It, is there a is there a def- definitive way of doing no, it, or you just? I don't think there is. Yeah. So one, if, if I'm at a festival, for example, and I'm trying to teach the crowd how to lilt, um, I'll, I'll just do the example. So it's diddle 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 So diddle 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 is certainly a, a common phrase. Maybe that's where the diddle diddle music comes from. And then within that you go dithery dithery dam. You might double up the ditheries, or you yeah. put a dither dither instead of a diddly, and then mm-hmm. it, and then it just develops, and you do your own you do your own thing. So then each individual performer is defining the sound. It's your choice. Oh, yeah, it's not prescribed. Yeah. No, no, no. All right. Not as far as I know, anyway. Yeah. But, yeah. But that that doubling up on the rhythm is kind of interesting. That's um, it reminds me of skipping. You know, when you do single skipping, and then you double up. Yes. What do you yeah. call that? Yeah, yeah, it's just that yeah. kind of difficult. Yeah. 
difficult. Yeah, yeah. Um, that, that's brilliant. Um, so when so when you're in your teenage years, and I, I, I hope you don't mind me asking this, but like, you know, what do you remember of around when your father died? Because you said that was like a very obviously a very formative thing. Well, it sounds actually since my brother died earlier in the year, I ended up going to a counselling session to to dig down into you know what made me grieve the way I grieve because I grieve differently to other people I won't go into the details of it but during that session it really made me think what was it about my dad dying that made me form the adult that I am because because of that and because I was 10 years younger than my brothers um, I spent a lot of time with my mum who was obviously a very different character to my dad so it's quite possible that because I've been you know submersed with mum for so long that's how I've developed possibly into the musician that I am but um, I don't think at the time I realised the effect it probably had uh, and certainly other people would have been impacted a lot more by a, a parent dying at age 12 than I have yeah. what, what was he like your dad from, he from was your a, memory yeah he was a socialist he was very sort of left wing and anti Thatcher uh, it could be quite political at times, and I just remember me, him, and one of one or more of my brothers just having a barney. Um, because at that age, I was only sort of seven or eight. So, and and the other thing about Dad, he was quite ill for the you know the last years of his life. He had chronic bronchitis, and um, he would have spent a lot of time in bed. And uh, but he, he was a pleasant guy. He was he was a really really good guy. Uh, and potentially because of his illness, he got a bit shorter when he was older. But um, he was always very supportive. And when when I was not wanting to practice, he'd, he'd slip me a you know two pounds at the time or whatever it might be, just to bribe me into playing for some yeah. of his friends. So he, he was really um, not supportive, but he, he loved the fact that we were carrying on this tradition. Um, and it's I, I didn't mention it earlier, but I probably should have. So so there was four boys in my family. Um, and there was only myself and one of my brothers, Tom. He played the flute, um, and it was this exile thing that I was going to mention earlier. So I've got a lot of first cousins over in Ireland, and not one of them played any traditional music. Yet we were exiled and raised in the north of England, and two out of the four played Irish music to quite a high level. Yeah. Mm. So it's interesting. You got got the kids who were born in Ireland. They got all this choice and the sometimes spoilt for choice and a lot of them for whatever reason just don't don't take it up mm. can't see the wood for the trees maybe when you, when you mentioned the impact that your time and your mum had on you as a player can you kind of can you describe what you mean by, by that well I think it was more the fact that she was you know she didn't put it like that but she was insistent that we'd, we would just get brought along to you know the, the Brian Brew the local Irish club she'd bring us to the flowers, she'd bring us to sessions. She was just really, really supportive. And, and the fact that she was a, a singer herself, like she, she'd stay up till three or four o'clock in the morning watching us play music. Like she was a singer, but she'd, she'd just sit there and she'd, she'd just be there. She was just a great, great woman. Well, is, is a great woman. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's funny when you, when you mention that thing about people grieving differently, because like, but when both my dad and my mum died, my mum died like, um, Four years ago, and and coming from a big family, there's like twelve different ways of <laughs> twelve children, yeah. twelve different ways of <clears throat> of figuring yeah. that figuring that out. You know what I mean? Mm. And it doesn't mm. happen on day one. No, you know, and it probably never 
stops as long mm. as you're breathing mm. you're mm. still kind of going That's through right. it in some yeah. form you know but I, I, I'm sort of fortunate with the way that I grew because I, I grew very heavily at the time and then it's almost like I just just get on with things and yeah not everybody does it that way did 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 having a physical outlet not help but like how did the physical nature of the sport that you were playing kind of contribute to your personality right yeah that's that's a tough question rugby league for those people that don't know is very brutal and physical and i've said to my wife and i like it i I don't read like i loved every minute and i wouldn't change anything but now looking back at how brutal it is it's almost like i don't want any of my kids doing that viciousness um but it, despite me playing that rough sport, I was not a rough person. Like there was ample opportunities to swing a punch or gouge somebody in the eye or yeah, tear somebody's hair. But I, I was never inclined to do that. I always sort of shied away. I stood on the edge of the fight. Um, I think I'm just naturally quite passive and a pacifist. So, was it was there ever a point when when your mum was sort of steering you in the in the academic direction? Was there ever a point where you felt a, yourself straining against that? No, I didn't. Yeah, I, I don't know whether that's because I just trusted mum so much, or whether I knew that if you go down the academic path, it's very difficult to go down the professional sports path. And likewise, if you go down the professional sports, it's very difficult to. Very difficult to marry the two. Some yeah. people, when they finished the sports, they then go back and do um, the academic stuff. But for me, at that time, and maybe it, it maybe it was that I just wasn't that driven to succeed as an elite sports person, even though I had the talent to do that. That's probably more what it was. Yeah, yeah. it's it's pretty interesting as well. Like from my limited experience of talking to people who were in a similar position to yourself, there is this kind of combination of things that has to happen for you to succeed in that world as well not mm. just not just the kind of raw motor skills but the mm. the desire to sacrifice a lot of other things in your life Absolutely. for that one yes that yeah, one yeah. goal and um you know i remember talking to somebody who had a chance to be an nfl footballer and he said i just didn't want to do it mm. he said ultimately i didn't want to sacrifice the rest of my life for mm. this one mm. thing yeah you know and it's not often that you make kids who are that inclined like most kids if they've got the opportunity to play AFL football that's what they're going to do they're hell bent on doing it um, I, I don't know why I wasn't top person so so what did you do academically what what, what? so so I finished um, actually just before my big exams I had my appendix out about two weeks before and back in the day it wasn't a good experience I remember being driven home from the hospital in a little mini which my mum drove and uh, you could just go over every bump, and I'd, I was just clenching my tummy. And uh, we went to the GP to ask for, um, you know, a medical certificate to try and get extenuating circumstances on the exams, and he wouldn't do it. And in hindsight, <laughs> it's probably it's probably a good thing. It would have meant it would have meant taking a year off and having to resit it all yeah, again. Um, so that's my excuse for not doing as well as I could have in my uh, in my A levels. But because of that, yeah. So I wanted to do. I wanted to be a vet, um, but I just didn't get the grades. So I went to Leeds University and did a degree called animal physiology. Um, so I, I did that for three years. I did honours. Um, and then at the end of that, people can go off and do forestries and fisheries. And you can then go on and do vet science as well. 
Um, but because it was the second degree, so at the time the first degree was fully funded by the government, but the second degree you would have had to pay. So five years of fully funded vet fees was going to be very expensive. Um, so after I did animal physiology, I then had the chance to go and play professional rugby in the south of France near a city called Perpignan on the border of, um, it's in a Catalan region on the border of Spain. So I played a season of rugby league over there and then at the end of the season I worked in a, a fruit orchard. I was picking nectarines and artichokes. And then during that gap year I then reapplied to do physiotherapy, which I got into. And then I went to um, Huddersfield University and did physio. What was and that's that? what I'm working as now. Yeah, and, and, and what was that little, that little taster of professional rugby league like? Rugby league in France is very yeah. different to anything you've ever experienced in England. It's very. I didn't even know they played it in France. I mean, I yeah, used to obviously about Union, yeah, but I didn't yeah. know they had a, a league. So in, in England, there's a banner cr- across the Pennines, the M62. Yeah. It's just rugby league, mm. and that's a long history. I won't go into that now. You can look it up on the internet. But I'm, I'm not sure why, but there was a pocket down in that south eastern corner of France that is just rugby league. It's a bit of rugby in it as well, but it's predominantly rugby league. Yeah. So a friend of mine, he he had contacts and. He said, oh, do you fancy giving it a try? So I, I loved doing the professional thing, but it was it just it was just a year in between going on to mm-hmm. another degree. But the French were very dirty. They were spitting and grabbing your ghoulies, and uh, it just wasn't pleasant. And, and, you know, that was long before video referees. Like, if the referee didn't say it, then... It didn't you know, happen. You put, you, put, you, you put your hand on the floor to play the ball, and the, somebody had stood you in the, the hand and... <laughs> Like it just—it wasn't any fun. It was not fun. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I had, I had great memories of France, and but I, I lived. We'll come on to this story eventually. But I, I lived with some players who were playing with me on the same team, who were from regional Australia, and they put me off Australia for a long, long time. They were a stereotypical, arrogant, brash, um, beer drinking, card playing, just wanted to stay Australian in a different country. Um, and it just wasn't me I wanted to associate with the Frenches and eat the food and learn the language and um, yeah so if you keep that in mind for later in the conversation I, I was really put off Australia for a long long time well would you like to give us another tune before sure. we progress to that next stage yeah yeah <laughs> um, well one of the next natural questions is going to be because there's a choice of instruments in front of us uh, yeah. when, when and how did you get to the next instruments alright yeah so after I'd um, played the whistle for a few years, the natural progression was to piano accordion because that's what I would teach at Billy Green. Ollie was, he was a piano accordion teacher. So my, my parents, God bless them, they bought me a very good piano accordion back in 1989. It would have cost a lot of money. Um, but I've never had it serviced. It's just a beautiful instrument. I'm just at the point of thinking about getting it serviced now, but it's... it's Still playing really well. So I played accordion for a long, long time. And I still play it now, of course. Um, and then when I was about 18, I, I, felt, I felt like I wanted to learn a different instrument. But it also it, it was also that the accordion was getting very heavy to drag around festivals and it was cumbersome. And um, for those people who don't know, in the Irish tradition, sometimes the piano accordion is frowned upon a little bit. So for a number of reasons, I wanted to learn another instrument. So it was either going to be concertina or banjo. And then one day my mum saw a, a banjo in a music shop in St. Helens near where we were living, and she brought the banjo home, and I, I started learning the banjo. So I'm a self-taught banjo player. 
just before we roll past it, you, you use the words for people that don't know the piano accordion sometimes look down upon. So I'm someone who doesn't know. Yeah. Why? Why? That's a great question. Um, I'm not sure. I, I think it's very easy for piano accordions to um, be a very overbearing instrument. If, you, if they're not played well, they're very loud in a session. Um, and possibly because they were associated with marching bands as well uh, and all that sectarian things that go with it. Um, and there and was it a, yeah, it's funny you mention that. Of course, you think of it as Scottish. Yeah. I think of it as Scottish accordion bands yeah, and, yeah. who would always come over for that. Yeah, yeah. And, um, although the um, one of the first musicians who had an influence on me was a a guy from Glasgow who came and lived in our town with another fella, um, and one of them was a guitar player, a great guitar player, and the other still lives in our town and teaches music at the school now, forty years later or whatever. But um, he played a piano accordion and he played in that sort of. Well, I could only describe as the Phil Cunningham style, yes, which was very yeah, yeah. articulate and nifty. Mm. And, you know, he'd be looking off in all directions, but his his right hand playing the melody would just be flying. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, it was an yeah, amazing... Yeah. I mean, yes. I'd never seen anything like it. Yes. It's just like this guy. But then he could also do these things, like, that you don't hear in with an Irish accordion where it was where it would be you know he could play these kind of more bluesy, bluesy inflections and he yeah, could play yeah, a bit yeah, of Cajun-y yeah. sort of stuff in there yeah. anyway that's I think beside the point the, but. part of the other possible reason is traditionally the button accordion has, has always been the mainstay for accordions in the Irish tradition and regardless of how you tune the reeds a button accordion sounds really different to a piano accordion and it was almost like there's this Invisible clash that never the twain shall meet. Piano accordions and button accordions just—they just don't sound the same. They're very different. So for all those reasons, possibly more that I don't know of, it's always been a bit frowned upon. Pro- probably not so more in recent years, but certainly when I was growing up. If if you take the piano accordion into a session where there are a couple of button accordions, is there a, a sort of harmonic clash in any way because no. of those tones? Because sometimes with with uh, reeded instruments like that, sometimes I think they can. Yeah, yeah sort of I, I don't think so. I think it's right. more the fact that if you, if they're not playing it very well, it can sound really loud and really brash mm-hmm. and crass. It's, it, I think it's just the way that it's played. Oh, yeah. yeah, it's a
was actually I actually should have played a different tune. I just the the tune that my wife and I well the tune that she walked down the aisle to was another. Do you want to do it? I'll try. I'll try it. Yeah, because yeah. it'd be good. It'd be good to give very much. Thank you. Did you play your wife down there? No, I didn't. No. And you know, but one one decision that I really shouldn't have done was when my wife was walking down the aisle. All that she wanted me to do was to turn around and look at her walking down the aisle. But I was I was just looking forwards, like in another in another zone somewhere. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, that that was the tune that um, a few members of the Leeds Curly Band played. It's a tune called Eleanor Plunkett. I'm pretty sure it's a Carolyn as well. Yeah, but certainly very old. Yeah. Where did you Where did you get married then? Uh, we got married in Huddersfield, St Patrick's Church. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, uh, do you want me to go into the story? Yeah. Like, where's your wife from? Right? Yeah, you yeah. Know that? Yeah. So, Anna, my wife is from. She's from Sydney originally, and coincidentally, she's a physio. She qualified in Sydney uh, long before we met each other. Around the same time, actually. Uh, but she did a lot of independent travel. She travelled the world and she ended up in London 
and got a bit fed up with um, being associated with Aussies and Kiwis and she got a, a temp job up in a town next to where I was living so she got a job in Huddersfield um, but when I qualified from Huddersfield I was working at a hospital about 30 miles away in Keithley um, and I had to do on call so I had to be a certain distance from the hospital to be able to get there in an emergency but I also wanted to still live a bit of the student life <clears throat> so I chose somewhere in between Huddersfield and Keithley and that town was called Halifax so Anna was living in Huddersfield in nursing accommodation um, and I had this house in Halifax and I needed a lodger so you know six degrees of separation and a lot of spiders webs friendship circles she ended up moving in to my house so we we lived in Halifax but we got married in in Huddersfield so we lived we lived in Halifax for six years um, and then we moved to Barnsley we had one little girl called Ailish uh, Anna did her PhD in Sheffield and then we both at the time we were getting fed up with England and you know if you believed everything in the media you know, there was a gun a gun on every corner and somebody trying to shoot you and and the, the media in England at the time it probably still is it was very um, sensationalised so um, we thought we'd give Australia a try so Anna started looking for jobs and when she qualified as a physio she got a job in a town called Albury and she really enjoyed it. So one of the jobs that she applied for was in the, the area where we now live in, Albury-Wodonga. She got a job as a physio lecturer at Charles Sturt University. So we came across there at the end of 2008. She was pregnant with our second child, Pascal. Um, so we just moved to Albury-Wodonga and we've been there ever since and really, really like it. So Anna's still working um, in academia, but more in the public service rather than the universities. How did you feel about the prospect of moving to Australia? <laughs> After what I said earlier. Yeah. I will, I mean, that's where, yeah. So prior to meeting Anna, I was actually fortunate enough to be a physio on a, a school trip. So this school had fundraised for three years, and at the last minute their physio dropped out. So I got the gig, and I had to pay a few quid towards it, but it was an amazing opportunity. We went to, uh, it was a sports trip, so we started in California, and they were playing soccer and netball and rugby against local schools over there. It was a monumental project. It was just amazing. So we spent a, a week in California. Then we went to New Zealand. Uh, we spent a week in New Zealand. And then we travelled down the eastern seaboard of Australia from Cairns right back down to Sydney. Um, so that was almost a month. Um, and I, I loved Australia, but I still didn't want to live there. For those people who haven't been to Australia, if you're in Cairns, even in the middle of June and July, which is winter, for somebody coming from the north of England, it was terrifically humid. It was just oppressive, and I just thought, I don't want to live there. So we, even after doing that, I, I still didn't want to live in Australia. But it was only after meeting Anna, um, you know, because she was from Sydney, and I thought, she's a beautiful person. There must be other good things about Australia, apart from the weather, and these people I live with in France. And um, yeah, so we, I gave it a chance, and it's been amazing. I was, well, I was probably a little bit prejudiced, but rightly so. But now that I live in Australia, it's just uh, certainly the region where we live is a beautiful region. Yeah. Uh, how how long did it take before you were um, connected into the music in, in Australia? Um, there's a story. So when we emigrated, we had to transfer through um, the United Arab Emirates. 
so we had a stop over in Dubai uh, but the week we were traveling there must have been some universal oil conference because there was no accommodation we tried everything so two days before we travel we've got a little 18 month old my wife's six months pregnant and we're just getting desperate so get on the internet go on to Dr. Google and I look up Irish music in the UAE and uh, there's there's actually an Irish community out there so I, I sent an email to the president not expecting to hear anything back he said oh I know a, I know a banjo player in Abu Dhabi he'll, he'll come and pick you up from the airport he'll bring you back to his house and all he wants is a banjo lesson and a couple of plectrums. <laughs> so, so that's what happened. We, we met this amazing guy called Jed Pam, who's from Liverpool, believe yeah. it or not. So he, he was just a lifesaver. So he put us up for the night while we had the stopover in Dubai, but he picked us up. It was a fair old drive. Yeah. Brought us back to Abu Dhabi and then dropped us back to the airport. The Incredible. So the, the point I was trying to make, you ask how we got connected. So it, this isn't to sound conceited, but because I've been around for a long time, and I've been in competitions and Kelly bands and I've taught at festivals. When you come to a sort of a, you know, it's a big country, but it's a small pond for Irish music. People probably knew that I was coming to Australia and, you know, Jody Moran's coming. And, uh, but what didn't help is that we were moving to Obruwadonga and there is literally no Irish music there. Like Melbourne and Sydney and Adelaide's Canberra is thriving with Irish music, but it's literally me and the kids at home just playing Irish music. So that's been a real challenge. Yeah. But then you 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 are responsible for Irish music in that area, right? You've there was the gathering. Yeah, yeah. So because it's it's so sparse, like there's a little bit of bluegrass and old timey and a bit of country. And there are a couple of people playing a few Irish tunes, but it, from what I'm used to, it's very basic and mm-hmm. um, it's not setting any sort of challenges. I, I said to Anna, I said we need to bring some music to our community. So <clears throat> what I did, I invited people from Newcastle and Sydney and Canberra, Melbourne and Adelaide, and for the last probably eight or nine years, at least once a year, we had this little gathering in a beautiful village called Tangambalanga, which is... Spell it. A, yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> well, it's an Aboriginal word, of course, but it, it means the, the land of the white-clawed lobster in the local Wiradjuri language. So um, there's a guy there um, called Peter Gohery. He's from Galway. Doesn't play music, but he, he loves Irish music. So he's opened up his farm. It's a 100-acre farm, and people just go up there once a year and camp, and we just have a great time. So it's, it's a real um, it's a boon for me to have all these Irish musicians come to our local community. And outside of that, I, I travel to festivals like we are at the moment with the kids too. Um, immerse them in the Irish music because we don't have cultists here. There is in Melbourne, of course, but where we live, there's there's nothing. So we I've got to travel to make sure the kids and it's still it's two kids you have, right? What's that? It's two two children you have. No, four, four, four we have. Yeah. So we had Eilish before we left England. Pascal was born here. He's now ten. Eilish is twelve, and then we had Dimpna. She's eight, and then Fergal is five. So the three eldest kids are. Doing really well with the music. Fergal's just starting at the moment. How do, you, been... how do you introduce them to the music? Have I? Or... No, how do you? Like, yeah, is well, it, it's difficult. Cause, is, cause... It like a ta- is it like <coughs> teaching a kind of language where you just kind of it start is, year zero and just give them, a, give them an instrument and let them... You know, well, I, I say to a lot of people, like if I, was, if I had the luxury of having a second language, I would make sure that my kids learned it. So to me, the, the Irish music is like passing on a language. 
Um, now, they, you know, because it's only me who's teaching them, in a very small community where people don't play Irish music, they could very well, when they're teenagers, turn around and say, you know, I've had enough, Dad, I'm not doing it. But because we come to festivals and we associate with other kids, um, it's making them realise that it, it's normal and it's, it's good and it's, it's what they need to do. But I've put a lot of work into the kids. So the real, really, in our house, when they were, you know, five, five or six, every weeknight, they need to do five tunes. doesn't matter what tune it is. And they get the weekend off. And if they do the five tunes each weeknight, they get a reward on the weekend. And that's, that's what we've done. And the, the, certainly the two eldest kids are just playing beautiful music now. Elish has just started on the concertina. And Pascal is... Unfortunately, to some people, started on the pipes. Right. So, uh, yeah, we managed to get a set. Unbelievable story. But Jack Brannan, who you interviewed this afternoon, he was teaching the whistle class last year. And at the end of the whistle class, he got he gets out his Ellen pipes, and Pascal is just transfixed with not only the instrument but the sound of it. So, for months and months, we're talking about pipes and his YouTube and different players and. We go to a session at a place called Yakandanda, which is another big old word for you. But we, we go to a session one night and Pascal comes along and at the end of the session I'm relaying this story to the owner of the house. And she said, just wait there a minute. So she goes into a bedroom, she brings out this practice set of Ellen pipes. Like Ellen pipes are difficult to get hold of at the best of times, very expensive. But particularly when you're in a little place called Yakandanda, yeah. the chances of getting a practice set of pipes. So a lady who was learning the pipes... Uh, she couldn't get to grips with them, so she gave them to this lady to try and sell. So this lady is now very kindly given numbers on long-term loan while Pascal gets a handle on them. Fantastic. So, so that's it. I, I'd actually just asked yeah, Jack, what, what is a good age? And he said 10. Mm. They've got the, the strength and yeah, also yeah. The, the dedication yeah. to, to be able to do it. And it, it's... It's going to be a real challenge for me because I, I can play lots of different instruments, most instruments, but I can't play the pipes. So I'm, I'm learning from ground zero like Pascal as well. So it'll be a good challenge for us both. <laughs> Do you reckon we can have a, a banjo tune and then we'll have a bit, a bit of a small chat and then finish up?
ask you first what those tunes were. Oh yeah, so the the one from the piano chord in early was Eleanor Plunkett, and then those two were the Road to List in Varna was the first one, and then um, the Gates House Maid. Um, so this question I'm about to ask you, you might not have an answer for it, but the reason I'm asking it is because, so I moved here with my wife and family a couple of years ago, two years ago, and I had a sort of similar notion in my head about the more negative parts of Australia, right, that you described, and you describe yourself as maybe having a bit of a prejudice, and I... I partly based on your experience with those blokes in the south of France. And um, and and I was kind of thinking about it as you were talking, and I was kind of wondering, like, how long did it take you to kind of begin to shed that? Um, I think I was very fortunate to move to the area that I've moved to. Um, and having been here 11 years, I've tried to pick apart what it is about the Australian culture that can be quite overbearing and I think for me a lot of it is to do with the the humour the humour here is different, it's not a bad humour but it, to me it can feel very um, sometimes mean and sarcastic and those negative humour type things whereas uh, where I'm from in England it, the humour is very soft and light hearted and, well to me it is but maybe that's just because of where I'm from but certainly the, uh, the humour makes a big impact but Albury with Donga is an unusual community it's very inviting and cosmopolitan and culturally vibrant not not with Irish music but with other things um, whereas other regional centres I'm thinking of <coughs> probably Wagga Wagga Shepparton Goulburn I've never lived there but when I've been there for other events it doesn't have the same feel as um, Albury with Donga I don't know if Geelong's the same or bowing heads, it might be. Yeah. I, I I'm not sure. I mean, my my. I I've kind of really sort of struggled with it. I've tried to examine this in myself and think like, why would I have this prejudice? Because, um, any of the Australians who I've spent any time with, uh, are nothing but the most generous, loving mm. people that you could ever hope to meet. So, the, so there's it's it's interesting that there's <clears throat> something beyond that that is projected to the outside world from here do you know what I mean it, it could potentially be the people that you're associating with you know where, whichever country you're in there's always going to be those you know pockets of people who unsavory characters are people who are very different to you but I think when you come to a a different country you tend to aggregate with people who are like yourself I think that might be part of it because there's, there's certainly certainly a lot of people in our region who you know, I, I just wouldn't want to hang around them for too long. Yeah, I think when you come when you come to live in a new country, it's like a level playing field of potential people that you might need to spend, you might end up spending most of your time with. And then, so you you put, you kind of put the negative people on par with the people who are sound and you want to spend time with because you don't know you haven't been able to figure out who it is. Whereas mm-hmm. if you're at home. Like I know the people that were hanging outside the corner shop spitting on the ground. They're like they're, mm. they're scumbags, and I'm not going to be hanging out with them. Yeah. I, I, I knew the lay of the land. Yeah. I knew very quickly. I could tell who you were by who you were with, and maybe that's a lot to do with it. So, if you get exposed to a couple of dickheads early on, 
it's very hard to until you know the rules to figure out who actually isn't a nice dude and who, mm. uh, who who's a nice person. Because it, it takes a while to get through it. Yeah, certainly where where we are in Wodonga, we're very fortunate to have the community that we have. We've got beautiful people through the church and the school and the sports and even last week when we got evacuated with the fires from the music festival you know there was people on our door offering bedding and just bringing over ice creams offering to do the laundry um, somebody offered us a camper van to come down here just boundless generosity just yeah. just good people to be around and you, you get that in every community Yeah, I think what you mentioned too about the you mentioned the kind of, maybe it's a meanness and I think it, there is that I think it Australians, the same as the Irish, I suppose, pride ourselves of taking the mick out of each other, but they deliver it in a different way. Like mm-hmm. it's, there's the yeah. warmth that's missing. I know that warmth <coughs> could possibly be there for other Australians who grew up in that, yeah, in that culture. And you know what? I, what I'm also thinking, the longer I'm here, Australia is a very young country. You know, the Aboriginals have been here for sixty thousand years, um, and when you meet Aboriginal people, they've got a different way about them very sort of charming and um, laid back and just different to the um, European migrated Aussies um, so Australia is a very young country and a lot of different cultures have been uh, you know for want of a better word forced together very very suddenly Croats, Greeks, Lebanese, Irish whoever it might be you've got this mixing pot of different cultures coming together with all sorts of different humour and identities. And it, it's just, I think it's just sorting itself out and that could take a long time to, to settle. Well, Johnny, no. thank you so much for giving up your time this evening. Oh, I pleasure. really appreciate it's it. Particularly with something like this. I, <laughs> <laughs> I, did I didn't want to say anything. So. <laughs> I did that bit. Yeah. <laughs> That's really why we do this podcast. What am I going to play? Yeah. Uh, what is this one called? So this is called a hip hop jig, and it was composed when I was uh, I had to have a hip replacement about four years ago. So it's the hip hop, but it's hip up. If you drop the H, it's also <laughs> double entendre jig. So that this when when you are oh, I won't bother I'll play no, the I was going to say when when you are not living in a qualifying region like um, you know Ireland or Amer- North America or England. You, you are allowed to, by default, go straight to the, the final. Right. Um, and then if you can't attend the event, in this particular competition, you can get somebody to play as your proxy. So I, I've played my own tune in the competition, but this one I'm playing was played by um, a beautiful young girl called Ava Gavigan. She played on the fiddle. She was only 12, I think, when she played it. Um, so when, when they judge this competition, it's not based on the performance per se is based on the, the actual tune so you send the manuscript over to Dublin headquarters and somebody's got to play it yeah. in person Yeah. do you get the vet who plays it or are you, you just oh, you just somebody, somebody, yeah. Yeah. somebody who's available and is willing to play it shouldn't say the word vet choose or so I was very fortunate to have her play it yeah
Jody Moran recorded in the twilight in Kuwait. Well, at the, the end of it was definitely dark. <laughs> it was three men. Okay, in it the wasn't dark twilight. Room. It was dark. <laughs> it was pitch black. Lit by the cold, cold blue light of a an audio recorder yeah. flashing at us. But it was fantastic. It was brilliant. And then what a cracking session at the pub to follow. Then it was it was went down and they have a um, on the Saturday night. There's a great thing called the um, what's it called? It's called the Up Shop Ball. So Up Shop for non-Australians is opportunity shop, second-hand shop, usually a charity shop. So you've got a campsite full of people directly across the road from this op shop, second-hand shop, whatever you want to call it. And it, it was just thronged with people buying all sorts. And then everyone gets dressed up in all their kit. They go in and there's a big Kaylee and all the kids have great crack and the all families and just down the road, like I'm talking two, three minutes down the road, there's a, a monster session happens on well pretty much every night as far as I could see with the photos. We were only there on the Saturday night yeah. and it was a it was a monster. <laughs> yeah, it was it was a it was a late night and I slept in my car, not for the first time. So ah, good days. Anyway, hope you enjoyed. Yeah. Thanks again. Jody morning. Hi, my name is Rosa. P- please become a subscriber to the podcast. Thank you.